Well, good morning, family. Good to see you guys. Uh, today we are, uh, as Pastor John said, we're beginning a series, and it's on the essential beliefs of the Christian faith that we're calling We Are Christian. And since our church's mission is to develop disciples of Jesus, uh, we thought that it would be a helpful series uh, for our church to spend some time in the next uh, couple of months. And we are going to be using the Apostles' Creed as kind of an outline for this entire series that we're doing. Uh, it's the oldest statement of belief in church history. Did you guys know that? For you guys little trivia people, there's some trivia. Uh, it was actually formed somewhere around the 200s A.D., and we got in the final form somewhere around 500s A.D. Uh, it came about during a time in history when there were many heretical ideas being spread about God, who God is, who Jesus is, what the church is, and what it means to be a Christian. Sound familiar? I feel like we're just in that day and age again. It's a really helpful thing that we have here. The creed was actually an effort to both protect believers from a smorgasbord of false teachings that were circulating as well as disciple new believers in the true faith because people were coming out of all kinds of different religious backgrounds into the church. And so I kind of had these two dual roles that it was doing. And that's, in fact, what we hope to do through this series, protect believers from false teachings and disciple new believers in the true faith. The Apostles' Creed got its name not because the apostles wrote it, but rather because it contains the essential teachings of the apostles as espoused by the scriptures. In fact, that's actually one of the purposes behind the Apostles' Creed. It is to summarize and distill scripture for believers. I mean, just think about this, guys. How frustrating would it be for you uh, that if you wanted to know more about Christ, you want to know more about this thing called Christianity, and someone handed you 66 documents and said, here you go, good luck with all that, start reading, right? You, that would be a daunting task. Like, where do you start in a million-word book there? Where do you begin? Uh, here's another question. How do all those stories fit together? Are they just kind of random stories? How do you make sense of all this when you don't know any of this stuff? The Creed helps summarize and distill the essential story of the gospel. The creed also brings us clarity. This is another one of its purposes. It, we all come from different backgrounds, even different religions, and we bring our prior beliefs in with us, into the church or into our faith. And so we need tools that bring clarity about the truth of God and the gospel. What do true Christians really believe? And what do they deny? Because for everything that is affirmed, there is a denial there, tucked away, Right? What do true Christians believe and not believe? What, what binds me together with other Christians throughout the ages that I've never met? Or, or is every Christian just kind of an island unto themselves and whatever they interpret the Bible to mean, that's Christianity for them? So we need answers for these questions and the creed helps us clarify true historic Christianity. We need that clarification. It also brings us symmetry. Symmetry. The fact is that we all, 
tend to have a lopsided view of God, don't we? Right? The gospel, God's people, we all have pieces that are missing in our understanding of our theology of God. I do too. We, ha- we have certain aspects of God that we really like. And so we tend to focus on that and we tend to diminish or ignore other aspects of God or the church or the body or whatever, right? And so this is going to help us. The, the creed helps us have a more complete, filled out, robust understanding of the Christian faith so that we will be mature, lacking nothing, that we will be able to last in the faith. And so in the end, this is just a helpful discipleship tool that simply gives us a jumping off place into the scriptures every week. In fact, we're going to turn to scripture now in Job 38. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Job 38. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. As I read this, it reminded me of many conversations with my adolescent children. (laughs) Job 38, (laughs) verses 1 through 12. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place? Thus ends the reading of God's word. Thank you. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty God, Father, I love how you talk with such assuredness and authority. You don't stutter. We need to hear from you today. Our very presence in this room is an admission that we need to hear from you. We are misshapen. And we need to be reshapen in your image and likeness. And you use your word to do that. And the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do your good work. Pointing us, orienting our hearts and desires towards the Father. For the sake of Christ the Son. In whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the creed begins with the words, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So right from the beginning, from the very first line here, the creed tells us that before we can understand anything else about what it means to be a Christian, we must first understand something important 
about the nature of the very God that we are worshiping. This is primary. This is foundational. We need to understand that God is supremely powerful and that he is redemptively personal. That's my entire outline today, all right? God is su supremely powerful and he is redemptively personal. So we're going to look at each of those in turn. First of all, God is supremely powerful. Just a few seconds ago, we read the passage from the book of Job. For those of you that aren't familiar or it's been a while since you've had, uh, I guess, your devotion time in the book of Job. What a cheery little book that is, right? The story goes like this. Job was an upright man. Job obeyed God. He was a God-fearing man, and he is a man who experienced the removal of all of God's blessings from his life. God took away all of his blessings from Job's life. And as it is, with all pain and all suffering that people experience, Job asked God the perennial question, why? Why are you allowing this suffering to happen to me? Why are you allowing me to experience this intense pain, God? And it's a question that we all relate to because we all ask it during difficult seasons of our life. God, why are you having me walk through this painful situation? What's your purpose in all of this? Did I do something wrong? And so this goes on for a while, and God finally responds to suffering Job with a, a series of penetrating and rhetorical questions that put on display the fact that he's God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. He essentially has just a couple answers, and one of them is, hey, I'm God Almighty. And here's how you can know that I'm God Almighty. I made heaven and earth, everything up there and everything down there. That's essentially one of his answers. You see, the word almighty is actually a summary word. It's a word that sums up the entire nature of God. Almighty means God is all-powerful. There's no one that has more power than God. He's God Almighty. So he has all that power. He's all-knowing. There is no one that knows more than God. God outknows any of us. God is all-present. He is present everywhere in his full essence all at the same time, unlike any one of us. God has no beginning and no end. God's always been there. This is what Almighty means. God never changes. You and I change, but God doesn't change. God has no needs. He's dependent on no one, and he answers to no one. Have you ever noticed that God doesn't speak with a lisp or like a speech impediment? He's so confident when he talks, right? God doesn't make decisions by committee. Have you noticed that? Like he doesn't send out focus groups and see how the people might react to that and then he decides. He doesn't, he doesn't like go and say, could you give me counsel on what I ought to do here? The Bible says that he takes counsel with himself according to his divine will. So God consults himself of what God ought to do and then he does it because he knows it's the right thing to do. That's God. To be almighty means that you are at the absolute top of the food chain. Are you tracking with me? And so to know that God exists as a supremely, as a supremely powerful, all we have to do is just look at creation. 
God says to the sea, in this passage, he says to the sea created, you will come this far, and then you will come no farther. How awesome is that? When's the last time you talked to the Puget Sound like that? Huh? That's amazing. No one else has the power and authority to speak like that and actually do that, guys. I, I, I personally really like the wording of verse 12. Um, this is great writing. Verse 12, God is speaking. He's been quiet. He's been listening. He's been listening. He's been listening to everything Joe's been saying about him. A lot of it's been untrue. And God decides to speak. He says, hey, Job, have you commanded the morning since your day began and caused the dawn to know its place? I mean, God, is, God literally asked Job if he can do what God has done with nature, and then he slides this little phrase in as he's still speaking, since your days began. Did you notice that? It, God is like saying, look, just before you answer my question, I'm just reminding you that you had a beginning. You are a creation yourself. I don't have a beginning. I've always been. It's like the ultimate rhetorical question. I love how he phrases that. If it has a beginning, if it runs on breath, right, it is not God, no matter how powerful it is. That's what God is saying. The entire heavens and earth declare that God is not just powerful, he is supremely powerful. This is important for us to know. If you're wondering, like, well, what does that mean to me? That's great doctrine and theology, but what does that mean to me? I'm really glad you asked. Uh, J.I. Packer, he's a theologian, he says this, as man is not his own maker, so he may not think of himself as his own master. Isn't that helpful? You didn't make you so you don't run you. Because that just doesn't even make sense. When you and I say that we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, we are confessing something, right? We are affirming something. And we're denying something at the same time. We're confessing that we are not supremely powerful. When we, can, when we affirm that God is supremely powerful, we're denying that we are supremely powerful. We are not the ruler of our life. We are confessing that God is supreme over our life and that he gets to use it however he sees best to use it because he made it. In other words, to believe that God is supremely powerful is just to humble yourself. It's to say, I am not God. And I believe that. I'm okay with that. But you know what? It's also a relief for us. It's actually a blessing for you and I. I, I like what Raymond Kanata and Joshua Riatano say. They say this, quote, to call God Almighty is to say that God is able to do everything he intends to do. God is able to do everything that he intends to do. I want you just to think about the significance and the ramifications of that statement. God is able to do everything that he intends to do. That means that God does not, unlike you and unlike me, God does not merely make promises. Amen? 
He can, he has the ability to actually keep his promises, no matter how ridiculously big they are. Listen, every one of them, not eight out of ten. Just let that land on you for a second. That's not a small thing, guys. It means that God does not merely start projects like you and I do. God is able to finish them, get this, every one of them. Not eight out of ten. Every one of them, right? He has the ability to complete them. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it on the day of Christ. You're a project. I'm a project. And we're going to be completed. Isn't that great? We're not going to be left halfway done. I love that. Why? Because he is supremely powerful. Think about all the forces that prevent us from keeping our word to the people that we love or people we work with or even to ourselves. Think of all the things that, that you and I, we bump up against because we're not supremely powerful that keep us and prevent us from doing what we say we're going to do. We run out of supplies. So we couldn't do what we did. We got to wait on a permit. And we're waiting and we're waiting and we're just, we can't move forward on this thing. We're tempted to cheat or to take shortcuts. There's enemies who are working against us. There, are, there is weather that's working against us. There is time that is working against us. Gravity is working against us. But listen, none of those things prevent God from accomplishing what he intends to accomplish. Why? Because he's supremely powerful. Like, for God, those factors and circumstances are utterly irrelevant Isn't that amazing? Isn't that hopeful? That should, like, take a load off your shoulders, brothers and sisters. I want to give just three quick examples of just how helpful this is for you and I. First of all, if you believe that God is supremely powerful, then you can believe that God will provide for your temporal needs like he says he will. Get this. Regardless of the circumstances. Regardless of the circumstances, regardless if it looks like there's going to be supplies on the way, that's irrelevant to God. It's relevant to you and me, but it's not relevant to God. He will provide food. He will provide water, clothing, shelter, a job, transportation, whatever is needed to live each day, though you may not see how he's going to do that. Why? Because he is almighty God maker of heaven and earth. God has hidden manna that you don't even know about kept in reserve for you. That's Revelation. Isn't that great? Here's another thing. Because God is supremely powerful, he can forgive all our sins. He can forgive all our sins. Not just our gossiping, slandering, or lying, or malice, as destructive as all those sins are, but also murder. Did you hear me? Rape. Robbery. Racism. Sexual immorality. 
he can forgive all of them. You may say, look, the things that I've done in my life, they are so offensive and they're so heinous that no one could possibly forgive me. Maybe them, but not me. And you know what? You're right. You're right. No mere human can forgive you. But God can. God can. Why? He is Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth. He is supremely powerful. God can do everything he intends to do, and he says he intends to forgive you. So that means that he can do what he says he's going to do. This is exactly why, by the way, when Jesus told that lame man that he had forgiven him sins, he hadn't healed him yet. Remember, that came after. When he's looked at that man, and he said, I forgive you of your sins, this is exactly why the Pharisees were so outraged by him making that statement. This is why they said, look, no one can forgive sins except God. And you know what? The Pharisees were right. They were right. No one can forgive sins. No, no mere human can forgive sins. Our sins are so vile. They pollute environment so thoroughly that it takes an act of Almighty God to forgive them. Guess what? God's able to do what he intends to do. He intends to forgive you and me of all our sins. Isn't that good news? There is gospel all through this thing. You'll see it each week. It is such good news. Thirdly, because God is supremely powerful, it means that we don't have to be. That's my favorite one. You don't have to be supremely powerful. God's got that job. Isn't that a load off your shoulders? You don't have to be in control over outcomes. You don't have to be in control of everything. Good news, we can be weak. Why? Because God is strong, supremely strong. This means that Christians don't have to fake like we're strong all the time. Do you get tired of faking that you're strong all the time because you're a Christian? I do. This is a total relief valve. God is our strength. God is our strength. God is our strength. And there is no other strength but in Him. We believe that. You know what this means? It means that you can admit that you're weak when it comes to parenting. I'm just going to put this down in our life a little bit. You can admit that you're weak in your parenting skills. You can admit that you don't know what to do. You know what? I'm just so tired. I can't endure with my kids. I can't disciple them and train them. I'm weak in that area. You can admit that. Almighty God can give you wisdom. Almighty God can give you resolve. Almighty God can direct you. You don't have to do that on your own. Isn't that good news? It means that you can admit that you're weak in times of conflict. You can say, look, I don't know what to say. And I don't like conflict. Almighty God can give you courage. Almighty God can give you the right words at the right time. You don't have to come up with that. Isn't that good news? Because God is your strength. It means that you can admit in times when you're dealing with intense physical pain and long-term pain, you can admit, I'm weak. Lean on Almighty God to help you endure. You don't have to come up and scratch up that endurance within you. He's got that, and he can give that to you. 
You don't have to ask him for strength. Ask him for his strength. Borrow his strength. Don't ask him just to pad your strength. You see what I'm saying? This is such good news. Call upon the one who tells the sun when to rise up and when to go to bed. And if you find that you're having a hard time acknowledging God as almighty, let me suggest a simple first step is acknowledge that you're weak. Acknowledge that you're weak. And you'll get there. (laughs) He'll take it from there. He'll take it from there. Secondly, God is redemptively personal. God is redemptively personal. If God were only supremely powerful, that would be a terrifying thing, amen? I mean, how could we as finite and sinful people come into contact with him and not die? And even if we could somehow come into contact with him, how could we ever really know him? Because God is, he's so high above us, And he's so beyond our understanding. How would we ever be able to know God if we could come into his presence? Uh, For those of you that are Avenger fans, maybe you saw the last Avenger movie, The Endgame. It'd be similar to the feeling of facing a Thanos who has all six Infinity Stones melted into his hand, right? Into his forearm. There's this line in that movie, Thanos says, he looks at all these superheroes with all their might and all their power and all their abilities, and he's got these Infinity Stones. And he says, you're strong, but I could snap my finger and you'd cease to exist. I see, non-Christians and Christians alike, we all know that an all-powerful but non-personal God means that we would be toast. But the creed reminds us of an important attribute of God. He is redemptively personal. And this too is good news. Look what Jesus says in John 5, verses 19 and following. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son, so we're Trinitarian already, right? We're off the beginning. I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son, and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him. So what? That you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So Jesus is going to judge people. And we'll get to that later on, too, in the last few weeks. The Father's given him that. Verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me. See how they're they're so tightly connected. Whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. That's eternal life. He does not come into judgment as a pass from death to life. I'm not going to go surgically through that passage because that would take like nine weeks just to do that, okay? There's a lot in there. 
But let me say this. Generally speaking, Jesus is telling us something very important and so wonderful about the nature and character of God the Father. Namely, that God is Father. God is Father, guys. Yes, he's all-knowing. Yes, he's all-powerful. Yes, he's all-present, the author of all that's created, sustainer of all things that still exist, and yet he also relates to his creation personally. Personally. Listen, God is not a universal principle and a higher power just kind of holding all this together. That's what Jesus is telling us. God judges, but he's not karma. It's not karma. In other words, God is not a force. God is a father. And we need to see him in that way. We know this because how the father and the son relate and have relationship with one another according to the scriptures. And what we see here is that the Father is in an intimately loving relationship with the Son. He is gaga over his Son. He absolutely adores his Son. He tells the Son literally everything he's going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do before I do it, because I want you in on this. That's the kind of relationship that they have with one another. He keeps no secrets from his Son. Isn't that amazing? And in turn, the son intimately loves his father. And he only wants to say and do what he sees his father saying and what he sees his father doing. That's all he wants to do with his life. He didn't want to express himself. He wants to express his father. He loves his father, absolutely and without exception. And so I want you guys to see that the son is intimately connected to the father. They are distinct, but they are never separated. You can't have one without the other. That's how tightly connected, that's how personal that they are. That's how close they are. Jesus did not just fall out of the sky into history, say, I'm inevitable, and start doing whatever he wanted to do in the world. One quick comment just about that understanding of God and Jesus and all this. That understanding of Jesus is called neo-orthodoxy. We would call it progressive Christian theology. And the creed helps us refute that and says, that's not Christianity, even though they're using some of our words. It's not real Christianity. So neo-orthodoxy or progressive Christian theology, they like Jesus the teacher, but not the Father who sends a Savior to fulfill his plan. They don't like that part, and they don't want to talk about it. There's a kind of a humorous take on neo-orthodoxy uh, throughout the years. They said the neo-orthodoxy's creed is very simple. I believe there is no God, and Jesus is his son. Don't think about it too much. It ruins the humor. That sums up that thinking. The creed tells us, and the scriptures tell us this. No, actually, God Almighty exists. He has something to say about this world that he's made and how you and I are to live in this world world, but he says it as a redemptively personal father who speaks through his son to us. And that's the true God. That's the true God. So let's apply this. What does it mean for us that God is redemptively personal? 
Just a couple of things real quick. First of all, it means that we can share the same intimate relationship that Jesus has. Does that blow your mind? I can't even get my mind around that yet. I'm still working on that one after all these years. We can have the same intimate relationship that Jesus has with the Father. That is a gift. That is for us. Let's go Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman. We'll get to that in a few weeks. Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit. See how Trinitarian this is? Father, Son, Spirit. He has sent His Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So what? So you're no longer slaves, but you are a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. When we believe into Jesus, meaning when we hand our life over to Jesus, something awesome happens to us. God adopts us as if we were his own son or daughter. Listen, God stops becoming a father, and God becomes our father. And that makes a world of difference for us. You see, the intimacy that the Father and the Son share, we now share with the Father. And guess what? This means that our earthly fathers are not the defining model of who God is. It's the exact opposite. You see the implications of this doctrine? God is the model of what a father should be like. Right? That's what Paul says from whom all the families of the earth derive their name. He's the model of what a father should be like. And this is really good news for us that had really awful, horrible, terrible dads. And this, this is good news, guys. Henry Light was a hymn writer, and he had a terrible father. Not an imperfect father, a really bad father, okay? Because all of us dads are not perfect. <laughs> Henry's parents divorced when he was young, and then they sent him away, his father sent him away to boarding school. His father remarried another woman, and from that day on, he forbid his son to call him father ever again. In fact, when he wrote his son in boarding school, he signed the letters, Your Uncle to remind him, I am not your dad, and you are not my son. Can you guys, can you guys just, uh, just imagine how that must have gutted a young man in the formative years of his life? The guys, the fatherhood of God was near no mere abstract doctrinal belief for Henry Light. The fatherhood of God actually became a source of comfort for Henry, and it came out in the songs that he wrote, in those hymns that he wrote. I want you to listen. Th think about what he experienced, and now listen to how he responds. You ready? Father-like, he's talking about God. Father-like, he tends and spares us. We are feeble frame, he knows. 
In his hands, he gently bears us and rescues us from all our foes. You can't write that unless you believe that God is your father, right? And it's gotten down into your DNA. And you don't just believe it, you believe into it, right? The good news of God becoming her father literally rewrote Henry's life. It's good news that God is redemptively personal, guys. This stuff matters. We need to hold on to it. It matters because it means that God the Father discloses himself to us instead of hiding himself from us. I don't want you to know me. God's not doing that with you and I now. He said, I want you to know me. So it'll change your life. It means that the Father comes near to us instead of withdrawing from us and sending it off to boarding school. God's not doing that with you and with me. Amen? It means that the Father lavishes his full affection upon us instead of pouring out his wrath on us. When we unite ourselves to Jesus by faith, we get united to the Father that we always wanted. You're not left without a father when God is your father. Isn't that great? Secondly, another implication is that we should relate to the father like Jesus does. So there's a blessing and there's an expectation. This should do something if this be true in you. If you truly do believe this, it should do something in me. We should relate to the Father like Jesus does. To know that the Father loves you as intensely and as intimately as he loves Jesus, his Son, should change us on the inside and work its way to the outside of us. We should want to relate to him the way that Jesus does. And that means that we should want to do what we see our Father doing, and we should only want to say what we hear our Father saying. We should want to please God in every single part of our life, not to try to earn his love, but because he's already given us his love through his only son, Jesus Christ. This is the kindness of the Lord that brings us to repentance, right? That's what it says in Romans. This means that we now ought to relate to the Father with total trust. Because that's exactly how Jesus related to his Father, right? He, it was the same First Peter. He entrusted himself up to the Father, even to the cross, right? So he trusted. You're going to sort that out. And that's how we are to relate to God the Father. That, that, that's what actually what it means when the, when the creed says, I believe in. Every single word of that has meaning in it. It's a summary. It's a compact statement. It doesn't say, I believe that God is Father. It says, I believe in God the Father. There is a personal relationship there. What does it mean? It means more than just mental agreement about God's nature or character or existence. Like it's just kind of some theoretical or fact out there. What we're confessing is this. It literally means to believe into God. That means that we rely and we rest the entire weight of our life upon him, just like the son did. In other words, to believe in God means you give yourself over to him. Does that make sense? Have you ever seen someone give themselves over to something? 
good or bad? Do you know what I mean by that? They've, they've literally given themselves over to that, whatever that thing is or that person is. Whether that may be drugs or alcohol. Could be a great hobby. Maybe it was a really great career. Or maybe it was a good cause. Or maybe it was just emotion. They just gave themselves over that. Or maybe it was a person. What does that mean? It means they've let go of all restraints. Take the safety belt off. Take the seat belt off. Quit holding me back. There's no more restraints on me. That's what that means to give yourself over to something or someone. It means that they are no longer relating to whatever that is in sensible moderation or in some kind of restrained way, measured response. It's full tilt response. They're rearranging their life around it. And why? Because they have believed into it. They believed into it. They believe it is the best, highest, most important thing in the world. That is what it means when we say that we believe in God the Father. We no longer relate to God in sensible moderation. <laughs> we have given ourselves over to him, and we proclaim it in a church service or wherever we go. We're not afraid to admit that. It's like being in love, right? I love him, I don't care who knows. We have given ourselves over to him. We trust all of ourselves to all that we know of God right now. Because we believe that God is supremely powerful and that he is redemptively personal. We may not know anything else that we believe, but we know those two things, and we believe that. Crossway. Have you given yourself over to God? Do you relate to him like you're his own son and daughter and he is your father, he's your daddy? Or do you still believe in God like you believe Olympia is the capital of Washington? Like it exists and it's true and it's there but it doesn't personally affect you. Because my desire is for every single one of you to give yourself over to him completely, unashamedly, embarrassingly. Give yourself over to God. Throw off your restraints. Whatever your restraints are, I'm begging you, throw off those restraints. Stop your measured, insensible responses to him. Stop throwing God the breadcrumbs of your day and the leftovers of your heart and let him have it all. You don't have to be afraid of that. You don't have to worry about what, what happened. Give yourself over to him. You will not regret it. He's so good. He's so good. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for else to come by? To know and to believe in God the Father Almighty is good news that revives us. It sustains us and motivates us through our life. And he loves you.
God, we thank you, Almighty God, that you are supremely powerful and forgive us when we ignore that fact. We thank you that you are redemptively personal. Help us come near to us today when we need you personally near us and help us enter into that relationship. Give us symmetry. We need symmetry today. If we keep you at arm's length, Lord, please draw us closer and and just amplify that personal redemption. If we see you as our little buddy and we don't have a little bit of awe and reverence, Lord, would you round that out too in us? We need you. We love you. We thank you for all that you have done for us and all that you continue to do for us. You will not fail us. Help us give ourselves over to you. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen.